Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be learning about the 2012 movie, Lincoln. And to help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, we'll be chatting with Dr. Brian Dirk, who is a professor at Anderson University and author of multiple books on President Lincoln, including Lincoln and the Constitution, Lincoln the Lawyer, and his most recent book, The Black Heavens, Abraham Lincoln and Death. Before we connect with Dr. Dirk, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Mary Lincoln covered up expenses for White House renovations when she went over budget. Number two, just like we see in the movie, President Lincoln was not sure about the legality of the Emancipation Proclamation. Number three, there was no delegation from the Confederacy trying to negotiate peace like we see in the movie. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find out the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Dr. Brian Dirk about the historical accuracy of Lincoln. After a brief opening sequence with Lincoln talking to some Union soldiers, we get a time and place for the movie's timeline. It's January of 1865 at the White House. That makes it two months after Abraham Lincoln's re-election and four years since the Civil War started. And almost right away in the movie's timeline, we find out that Lincoln wants to pass the 13th Amendment that will abolish slavery. There are some people in the movie who talk about how he's using his war powers like a dictator, twisting meanings and ignoring court rulings. And as the movie explains it, Lincoln thinks the Emancipation Proclamation could be ruled illegal by the courts once the war is over, since issuing the proclamation was sort of a gray area as far as the Constitution is concerned by pushing the limits of the war powers. How well did the movie do setting up President Lincoln's attempts to abolish slavery with the 13th Amendment? I think it's one of the best parts of the film. I think they do it very, very well. There is a scene that I've used in my classes and some of my colleagues have used where he's talking to his cabinet and he gives a long talk about that. You probably know which one I'm talking about where he says, you know, this is what I did. This is, you know, these are the questions. And I thought they did an excellent job with that because it was in fact a problem. When Lincoln passes the Emancipation Proclamation uh, or writes it rather in um, 1863, People forget that Roger Taney was still the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, the author of the very racist Dred Scott opinion, as well as four of the justices who had backed him on that. So there was a five-judge majority that were just itching to kill emancipation. Um, he was, Lincoln was terrified that emancipation would end up in the Supreme Court because he knew he would lose. So, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting issue that they got absolutely right. And I love how the film portrays the fact that nobody really knew what war powers were in 1863 or 64, 65. I mean, we had never fought a major war to this point that really tested those boundaries. I thought the film did an excellent job. Absolutely. Was that Lincoln's first attempt in that t- the timeline of the movie there in, in 1865? Was that his first attempt to try to abolish slavery? Oh, no, no, no. It's a process. Lincoln is a very complicated figure in that regard. Um, Personally, he was always anti-slavery. I never saw one word he ever said in favor of the institution. But when the war broke out, he said, and he's quite right about this, he said, I think slavery is a terrible idea, but I don't have the constitutional authority to really do anything about it. But then the war hadn't started yet. But then when the war starts, that puts this in the neighborhood of war powers and he's speculating about how he could use war powers. He also got behind efforts to abolish slavery in uh, the District of Columbia because um, he had power to do that since that's, you know, the gov- seat of government. And he puts a lot of weight into trying to get that done. And he puts a lot of weight into trying to get the border states like Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, even. Uh, it's like five slaves in Delaware, but they were still there. And he's, and he's trying to do that, too. So he had been doing this for quite some time. Oh, wow. Okay. 
In the movie, one of the founders of the Republican Party named Preston Blair, he goes to Richmond and convinces the Confederate leadership to send three delegates to discuss peace with Lincoln. Those three delegates, according to the movie, are Senator R.M.T. Hunter, Judge John A. Campbell, the Assistant Secretary of War, and the Vice President of the Confederate States of America, Alexander Stevens. Was there really a delegation from the Confederate States of America sent with the purpose of negotiating a peace? Yeah, yeah, there was. And uh, the movie got that quite right. And in fact, he got those three men exactly right. Now, exactly exactly what role Francis Blair actually played here is a little fuzzy. Uh, we know he was a conservative Republican who had connections that he could have used in that regard. And we know he was making those efforts. This is one of those parts in the film where we know it happened, but of course, movies have to fill in specifics. So they put the scenes in that, you know, may or may not have happened, but it's totally plausible. Um, yes, they did have very much those men. Th- the film gets that part quite correct. And in fact, Alexander Stevens had broken with Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Da- Davis was saying, we're not coming back. I don't care what you guys do. I have slavery, I don't care. We are going to be independent. Whereas Stevens basically denounced his own boss and said, I think we ought to talk to these people and see if we can salvage something because the war is lost. So they got that absolutely correct. Oh, yeah. There's an interesting concept that I wanted to ask you about because it seems like President Lincoln and General Grant in negotiating a peace, they run up against this idea that if we actually negotiate a peace, that might actually recognize the Confederacy as a separate nation because they're coming to the table like, oh, these are two separate nations. I think there's even a line in there where uh, General Grant's like, I need to remind you, there's only one country and we're both citizens of it, you know, something like that. Was that a difficult point for these negotiations going on? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, as you might have been able to tell, I have a very positive take on this film. And this was one of those dicey, political and constitutional issues during the war that usually Hollywood kicks to the curb in favor of something more simple, but they didn't in this case. I mean, this is, this is exactly what was going on. For example, uh, Lincoln hardly ever referred to the Confederacy as the Confederacy. He always called them the so-called Confederate states or the American states in rebellion. He was afraid to say the Confederacy because that you know, gave legitimacy to the Confederacy. And that was indeed a problem. Um, that's why, now there's a bit of a problem I have with the film in that it seems to suggest there was some flexibility maybe on some of these issues, but there wasn't. Lincoln, Lincoln basically said, you will come back and you will not have your slaves and we won't, neg- we can negotiate everything else, but we're not negotiating that. And that's where th- there were two or three attempts by Southerners to try to negotiate a peace. And every time they brought up separation, Lincoln just basically said, we're not talking about that. You're, you're coming back or this is this is dead. So they got that quite right. What was General Grant's role in that? Because he kind of plays some some parts in those negotiations. Was he involved in that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because after all, he is, you know, he's on the front lines. Uh, the, the men have to come through his lines. Grant was very much the loyal soldier. He entirely agreed with Lincoln on all of these issues, as far as we know. And um, there was never a disagreement between Lincoln and Grant over that issue um, or really any other issue. I, I thought the film did a fine job of showing Grant as sort of uh, Lincoln's very able and unquestioning right arm in all of this. One of the things I really enjoyed about the movie was how it depicted Abraham and Mary Lincoln as more than politicians. It depicted them as people. We got to see this, especially as they struggled with the death of their son, William, but because of the timeline of the movie, we don't really see how that happens. We can just see that they're clearly torn up over, it, especially Mary or Molly, as President Lincoln calls her throughout the movie. Can you give us some more historical context around what happened to William and how it affected his parents? You could argue pretty strongly this was the most traumatic thing that happened to the Lincolns personally during the war. You know, they had four children. Their oldest son was Robert. Of course, he's in the movie. And then they had a child named Eddie who died uh, in, uh, I believe, 1850 from uh, consumption, tuberculosis. He was only like, I forget how old, like five or six. Then they had Tad and then they had Willie. Willie was a little older than Tad. 
he was he was he was Lincoln's favorite. Uh, everybody said that Willie of those four boys was the most like their dad. And they were very close. And we're not quite sure exactly how this happened. Lots of theories, but both Willie and Tad contracted typhoid fever in 1862, which is caused by drinking tainted water that's mixed with usually human waste. Washington, D.C. was a pit back then. We think they might have just accidentally ingested some water that was tainted. Tad is very sick, but he recovers Willie lingers for a long time, going up and down and up and down, and just tortured his parents. You know, there there were there were days when they thought he was getting better, then they thought he was getting worse. And the really sad part is, the day before Willie dies, he is offered by Dorothy Dix, a nurse, to help take care of Willie. And he writes back and says, "I appreciate it, but I think he's getting better. You don't need to worry about it." And the very next day, the poor kid dies. I mean, I can't imagine anything more painful. Wow. Is there any example of how that might have actually affected them politically? Because it seems like in the movie, they do a pretty good job of compartmentalizing, you know, being in we, there's some scenes where we see the president and, and Mary in private and they're, you know, just totally broken up and then all smiles, you know, on the other side of it. You know what? That's actually my latest book I just wrote last year called The Black Heavens, Lincoln and Death. I deal with that in that very issue. And I again, uh, I think the movie gets this really good because that's exactly what happened in private. Mary was really close to coming completely unglued. In fact, at one point, she's been bawling for days on end. She's crying her eyes out. Lincoln walks into the bedroom, opens up the curtain, points to the insane asylum in Washington, D.C., and says, if you don't get control of yourself, we may have to send you there. I mean, it's that bad. But then in public, there's no indication in public that she was that close to a mental collapse. You know, So they did a very good job of putting a public face on being able to stoically carry on. But in private, uh, oh my God, Mary was shattered. And, and, and Lincoln was pretty badly shooken up. There were several days after Willie died in which Lincoln simply could not transact government business. And then he kind of pulls himself together. You could argue Mary never really recovered from Willie dying. You really could. Wow. And from the way it sounds like that happened, I mean, there's got to be that guilt, especially if you turn somebody away like that. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of emotion going on there. There sure is. Wow. I, yeah. I, I couldn't couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. One of the scenes that we see in the movie um, where they're putting on a happy face, we see Mary Lincoln talking to Thaddeus Stevens, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And in their discussion, Mary jokes about how he doesn't need to convene another subcommittee to investigate her. But then she goes on to talk about how the White House was a pigsty when she and the president moved in. She mentions there being tobacco stains on the carpets, mushrooms sprouting from the ceilings. Is it true that Mary Lincoln had a big impact on the upkeep of the White House, like the movie implies? She sure did. The house is falling apart. When the Lincolns moved in, Wallpapers peeling. Um, I don't know about the mushrooms specifically, but hey, why not? It makes perfect sense, right? You know, actually, it's too bad they couldn't have gone into that because it's actually a fascinating story because Congress um, appropriated a significant sum of money. I, I forget the exact amount that should have been well able to renovate the house. Okay. So she convinced people, yeah, this needs to be done. But Mary has extremely expensive tastes. She's not going to go buy carpet from Walmart. She's going to go buy carpet from Neiman Marcus. Okay. I mean, she is just buying just a crap load of stuff, blows the budget completely up. And then she panics because she's like, Oh my God, I mean, I'm like, I'm like thousands of dollars over bill. What if Abe finds out, Oh, I am really in trouble. She persuades some congressmen and congressmen's aides to cover the deficit by hiding the money in military appropriations bills, which would have been a scandal of epic proportions if it had ever been found out. In fact, she was scared to death that he was going to lose the election in 64 because then they were going to find out about that. She's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, so, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, she did renovate the White House, but it, it just about cost her politically pretty badly. Wow. And I can only imagine how that would just add on to all the other stuff that was already going on for her and just add extra amount of stress. Lincoln at one point 
actually found out he didn't find out the whole thing. He he died before he found out how bad this was, but he did see a bill for something. And he says to Mary, he loses his temper and says, you're going to have to stop spending money for flub dubs for this damned old house or something along those lines. It's just a great moment in their marriage. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, if we head back to the movie, there's quite a few arguments that we see made by politicians both for and against the 13th Amendment. And one of them that stood out to me, because it's repeated multiple times, but it's interesting because it's the same argument used on both sides. People for the amendment think it could eventually lead to the right to vote for black people, while people against the amendment mock the idea of the right to vote for black people as if it's some horrible thing that's going to be inevitable if the amendment is passed and they're using it as fear tactics. How well did the movie do showing these arguments that were made both for and against the 13th Amendment? Awfully well. Again, that's generally speaking quite accurate. Now, again, it's a film. Movies have to, as I'm sure you know with your podcast, they they have to fill in things that we just generally know about. So, you know, I mean, you watch the movie and maybe maybe that particular Congress may or may not have made that particular argument. But generally speaking, that's very true. What we've got to remember is the uh, the Constitution had never been amended like this before. Okay, the Bill of Rights is passed in 1787. It was amended the the 11th and 12th Amendments. I always tell my students, you get an A for the semester if you can tell me out of your memory what the 11th and 12th Amendments are, because nobody knows. They're procedural for like votes and stuff. Okay, this is the first time in American history we had ever amended the Constitution for a deeply moral issue like the 13th Amendment. And it was extremely controversial. There were people who said, you don't get to do this because you're basically throwing shade at the founders. You're saying the founders screwed this up and we all know they're perfect. So you're saying that they're, they're flawed. Oh my God, we can't do that. You know, so there was that. But then there was a very deep racist argument against this. It's exactly the way the movie portrayed it. If we give them their freedom, next thing you know, they're going to get the vote. Next thing you know, they're going to be buying the house next door. Next thing you know, they're going to be dating my daughter. I mean, there's all kinds of racist arguments that to the modern ear is disgusting. I mean, if anything, the movie kind of toned it back. There, there are things that were just horrible that were said during that time period about this amendment that way. Wow. I didn't even think about that being just a brand new concept almost of adding that type of an amendment. Yeah, it had never been done. One of the major plot points in the movie centers around the Confederate delegation from Richmond that we talked about as they're coming to discuss peace. And the way the movie explains it, there's kind of this this time rush because a lot of people seeing the passing of the amendment as a way to abolish slavery really to end the war. But if the Confederacy is willing to negotiate peace, then there's no need to abolish slavery. I don't remember their names, but there was, you know, there's a there's a, 
a couple in the movie that come to visit Lincoln and they're like, oh, you know, of course we're going to tr- support the the amendment. And it's like, well, what if the war ends? Well, if that's the case, then no, we're not going to support the amendment, right? Was that some, almost this this rush of between negotiating peace and the 13th Amendment, it's going to be either or? I think it was true, but I also think the movie, in order to make a dramatic plot point, tended to exaggerate that. Yes, there were people who felt that way, okay? But uh, as you can tell, I, I, I really love this movie, but I do think they pushed that too far, okay? Because that, that yes, I mean, there were people that thought that way, but where they really kind of get this messed up a little bit, I think, is suggesting that the choice was that stark in 1865, that we're either going to get slavery back or we're going to get the amendment one or the other. The fact is slavery was dead. Everybody knew slavery was dead. Uh, Lincoln himself had said, the incidents of the war have killed off slavery. There's no way this thing's going to survive. Really, no reasonable person believed that slavery could be reimposed. Therefore, most Confederates weren't doing what they suggest in the movie they're doing, saying, you give us our slaves back, we'll come back into the Union. Some were saying that, but most were not. Now, I'll tell you, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, was absolutely not saying that. In fact, he was saying, I don't care what you do. We're not coming back. That's all there is to it. So the Confederacy itself was very divided over whether it was going to come back or not, with some people like Alexander Stevens saying, Let's sue for peace and get the best deal we can. But most everybody thought slavery was gone by that point. I guess I didn't realize that that was almost already determined. Yeah, I just because by that point, I mean, what do you got? You got contraband. They were called contrabands, uh, runaway slaves. You've got contraband camps with literally hundreds of thousands of slaves who have run away and you're never going to get them back to their plantations. You've got, what is it, 140, 180,000 black men serving in the Union Army. You're never going to take their guns away and put them back. The movie tends to suggest that this was a viable option, that you were going to reimpose slavery. Uh, Some people may have felt that way, but the vast majority of people, even people that were very racist, were like, hey, man, this is dead. This thing is never coming back. If we head back to the movie, there's another part where we get to see the Lincolns as as people. And this is when one of Lincoln's sons, Robert, joins the army, much to his parents' regret. And when that happens, well, we see Mary put her foot down. She pretty much threatens her husband. She's like, she believes the amendment is going to end the war. But she also doesn't believe Secretary of State Seward is going to get the votes necessary to pass it. So as she turns to Abe at one point, and I don't remember the whole conversation, but there's a line where she's like, now that Robert's involved in the war, woe unto you, sir. You will answer to me if you don't get the necessary votes, right? That was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I was like, Mary, who? Slow down, girl. Okay. You, 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 you tell him how this is going to work, man. No, I, you know what? No, there's no evidence that that conversation ever took place. Now, again, this is another example of, generally speaking, they got the facts right, but they fill in details to do what they want to do with dramatic license. Yes, Mary was extremely opposed to Robert going into the army, um, and she put her foot down, would not let him enlist. He, Robert was extremely upset. Lincoln was extremely upset. The movie gets that right, all right? But as far as I know... Mary never tied the 13th Amendment to her son going into the army the way she does in that scene. Now, that's not to say it couldn't have happened. I like the scene, though, even if it is taking some liberties, because it shows that Mary Lincoln is a politically active, astute woman. And that's exactly what she was. And I like that. You know, it shows Mary not as just a you know first lady who just worries about decorating the White House way too much, okay? She had opinions about emancipation. She had opinions about the war, and she voiced them, much to the chagrin of a great many men back then who said women shouldn't do that. So in that sense, I like that scene. I, but I, I, I don't know that it ever happened, and there's no evidence of it. Okay, okay. Were there, were there any moments like that that Mary did put her foot down with Lincoln and, and made, made him go personally try to do something? Because after that, scene, you know, of course, we see him in the movie. He's like, okay, well, I guess I'm taking over for Seward and I'm going around trying to get the vote. <laughs> Not that we know of, really. Um, in fact, what was really happening was that Mary hardly saw him. She actually had far many more complaints 
that he was so bogged down in the war that even though they lived in the same house, she wouldn't see him any. She didn't. I mean, I mean, she did, I guess. But um, again, this is we have to kind of infer this stuff. You know, we have uh, eyewitness accounts. Elizabeth Keckley, who's a character in the movie, wrote a book about behind the scenes in the White House, talks about them having conversations about politics, but she's not very specific. So we don't know what exactly she's telling him to do. We do know that Mary um, did support emancipation. She actually believed that it was a good idea. And we do know that she told him that, uh, Lincoln. But this is, again, where the movie just carries things in a plausible, but not documented direction, if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, creative creative licensing, essentially. A lot of movies do that. (laughs) Well, when it comes time for the vote itself in the movie, we'd see that there's an attempt to postpone it. And that happens when uh, Mr. Pendleton from Ohio addresses the House to let them know about the Confederate delegation trying to negotiate the peace. There were rumors of it circulating around, but he claims to have proof of this. And then there's a motion to actually postpone the vote until President Lincoln himself can address this issue of the delegation. There's a scene there where we see guy watching from the balcony, W.N. Bilbo, runs the note from the Capitol building over to the White House, delivers it to Lincoln. He reads it and then writes down a response. And then we don't actually see the response until he's back, you know, runs back (laughs) to deliver it to uh, Congress. And on the floor, it's read, says, uh, so far as I know, there are no peace commissioners in the city, nor are there likely to be. Which is true, since Lincoln had, we saw earlier in the movie, he had ordered the peace commissioners to be taken to Hampton Road, Virginia, no further, specifically told them to not bring them into D.C. So technically, it's not a lie. Also, not really the whole truth. (laughs) How much of that actually happened? Technically, yes. Okay. Um, There were rumors that the commissioners were in the city. Congress does delay the vote to find out if they were in the city. They did send someone to the White House to ask Lincoln. Lincoln said no. But we don't know what was in his reply. The, the, the actual document in the movie, we don't know if that was actually in the no. We just know he, he said no, they're not. Okay. We also don't know. The movie suggests, as I, I saw, as Lincoln being the shrewd politician who can, you know, who plays chess and sees this maybe becoming an issue and therefore tells them not to go to D.C., we don't know if that's true. Uh, it's certainly plausible that he saw that this could be an issue. But uh, all we know is that Lincoln had them come to City Point and no further. It could just as easily be, though, that he did that because, again, he doesn't want to confer legitimacy on the Confederacy. If he had allowed them to come to D.C., that is a de facto representation of them as being diplomats of an actual country, which he never said they were. So we don't know what's in Lincoln's head. The movie supplies something in his head that may or may not have been there. Okay, filling in a lot more of the details then, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. In a plausible way. I've been involved in various projects like this, one or the other. And, and basically, my, my take is always, you know, as long as it's reasonable that it could have happened, let's cut movies some slack. They have to have dramatic storytelling, and they don't have enough information to be able to say things that need to be said. So I I didn't have a problem with that at all. Well, if we look back at that scenario with a historical lens, the impression I got was that the movie very heavily implies Lincoln was prone to bending laws to get things kind of to go his way. We talked about with the, the war powers and things like that. Is that true? Did he kind of purposely negotiate things? I mean, I guess that's politics, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember when the movie came out, 2012, I remember there were uh, political commentators, not historians, but political commentators who said this movie is valuable because it shows people who watch it that democracy is a messy business. You know, there's that great scene between Lincoln and Thaddeus Stevens where uh, Lincoln says, you have to have your compass pointed true north. But if you get lost in the swamps, you never get there. I mean, I, I love that. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very good way to put it. Um, as far as the general points you're raising is concerned, whenever I talk about this or write about it, the point that I emphasize is every single legal and constitutional issue almost is brand new. It's not so much that there were these rules that everybody knew what they said and Lincoln skirted them or played with them or whatever. 
For example, nobody had ever tried to declare martial law before, really. Uh, well, I mean, I, General Jackson did back in the War of 1812, and he got sued for it, okay? I mean, nobody ever tried to do a lot of the civil liberties things that he had to do. Certainly nobody ever tried to emancipate slaves the way he did. Nobody knew what war powers were. I mean, the courts had never ruled on this because there had never been a war that really tested these issues. Yeah, I think you're right. He does bend rules, but I also point out the rules are bendable because they are just really vague and nobody quite knows what they say. Right. It's inevitable at that point. If they're so vague, then at some point there's going to be something that has to set those set a precedent for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Lincoln is setting that. In many ways, during the war, we write the first U.S. Code of Legal Conduct uh, under his administration during a war. First time, really, that, the, that anybody's even considered the idea about African-American rights being a federal issue, because prior to this point, it, it was hardly ever a federal issue. I mean, so many things are just utterly unprecedented here. Once the amendment actually passes in the movie, we see there are marches and, and singing in the street at the White House. President Lincoln himself finds out because we hear bells ringing across the city. It's a, it's a celebration. How well did the movie do showing the reaction to the amendment being passed? Well, I mean, it's one-sided. It's accurate. Yes, there were celebrations. I mean, you know, by 1865, I would argue, I think most serious Civil War scholars would argue that even though there is a great deal of racism in the North, even though Northerners are certainly not prepared to allow African-Americans to have full political or social equality. There is a consensus in the North that slavery was an evil institution that needed to go. And you got to remember, this is all the 13th Amendment does at this point, is it ends an institution that a great many Northerners believe got their sons and their dads and their brothers killed on battle. Lincoln himself says in the second inaugural address, he says, everybody knew that slavery was somehow the cause of the war. And I think that's true. So yeah, when this thing is passed, there was a national sense of relief. There are parades and celebrations. Now, on the other hand, the movie leaves out, there are a lot of really angry people too. Among them, John Wilkes Booth, who was very racist. One could argue that when Lincoln endorses black suffrage from a public speech from the balcony of the White House, Booth is in the audience and he says, by God, that's the last speech he's ever going to make and shot him a few days later. So yeah, the movie's not wrong. But for whatever reasons, it's not showing that there were plenty of Americans who thought this was a horrible idea and were convinced that, you know, this is going to be a horde of black people moving north and stealing their jobs and whatnot. I want to ask you about Thaddeus Stevens. I mentioned him a little bit earlier, Tom Lee Jones's character. And at the very end there, we see him taking the official bill. He takes it home. And then we find out that his significant other is a black woman. Is that why he fought so hard for racial equality for 30-some years, like the movie seems to imply? First of all, the idea that they would have given Thaddeus Stevens the original copy of the amendment's absurd. Okay, I'm sorry, that's Spielberg is pushing the envelope with that one, okay? It's like, dude, there's no way, okay? That's not, okay. I thought that was pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. There were widespread rumors that Thaddeus Stevens was romantically involved with his African-American housekeeper, but it was never proven. And to this day, we do not know if this was actually the case. Stevens is an outspoken proponent, not just of abolitionism, but of uh, civil equality. That earns him a lot of enemies. It was a very common thing back then. If you're a white man advocating for abolitionism, your enemies are going to accuse you of sleeping with a black woman. Lincoln was accused of having a Negro mistress, or that Negro in air quotes, as they said back then, um, uh, yeah, which is, of course, not true. These were rumors floating around. They may or may not have been true. But again, this is yet another thing where the movie is taking something that could have been true and saying, okay, we're going to show that it is true. Politically, did he really push as hard as, as we see him in the movie trying to get the amendment passed? Oh, yeah. Uh, Stevens was absolutely committed to this. I love how they um, show the messiness again, okay, when he's given the speech and, you know, he, ha he has to suggest that this does, does not imply full social equality when that's what he believed. I thought they did a fine job with him. You alluded to this a little bit earlier. And at the very end of the movie, of course, we see Lincoln's assassination. 
well, I, I guess we don't really see the assassination happen in the movie. We see Tad Lincoln watching a play in a different theater. The end, somebody rushes on, announces that the president's been shot at Ford's theater. And then uh, we do see a scene later on where, you know, at 7.22 a.m., April 15th, he's pronounced dead. Can you fill in a little bit of the holes there and give us a little more historical background on Lincoln's assassination and what the prevailing thought on the motivation might be behind it? The movie, again, does a, a good job. As you point out, they don't actually show anything about John Wilkes Booth, um, which uh, totally makes sense. Why would you want to muddy up the storytelling by going off onto that tangent, you know? But, you know, John Wilkes Booth, as I pointed out earlier, was a very pro-Southern, very bigoted, uh, very, very racist man who had uh, gotten together a kind of a cabal of bar flies and misfits and ne'er-do-wells as he wandered around the bars of D.C. denouncing the Lincoln administration. His plan had was originally to decapitate the federal government in one night. He was going to shoot Lincoln. One of his compatriots was going to shoot Andrew Johnson. One of his compatriots was going to kill William Seward, who's in the movie. Was, they were all going to be shot and then, uh, all that. The other guys uh, either chickened out and got drunk. The one guy almost killed Seward, but he didn't succeed. Booth, however, through a combination of just the fact that for whatever reason, they just didn't take the assassination as a serious prospect when Lincoln went to the theater. I mean, they violated every modern security rule for presence you can imagine. They advertised in the papers exactly where he was going to be that night. His bodyguard left the door open. I mean, he just, he, I've heard a couple of rumors as to why the bodyguard left, but basically he wasn't even doing his job. Booth was well known in Ford's theater, so nobody was even going to notice the guy. He's an actor in a theater. Yeah, there, there, there he is, whatever. So everything fell into place for him to go pull off what he pulled off. Now, there's a longstanding debate in uh, modern Lincoln circles. Was Booth, in effect, a Confederate agent? And uh, there are some scholars who believe that none less of a personage than Jefferson Davis himself basically gave the order for the hit. I don't know if you can go quite that far, but one of his conspirators was John Surratt, who was in fact a, a Confederate agent with the Confederate Secret Service. Oh, wow. I've never heard that theory before that they actually potentially put a hit out on Lincoln. Wow, that adds a whole other... Well, that's a theory. There's no direct evidence of that. Speaking for myself, I'm skeptical. I know a bit about Davis, too. I, uh, I, I wrote half a book on him uh, a while back. But um, I, this doesn't sound like Davis would, would count as that kind of thing. On the other hand, there could have been people farther down the food chain in the government who knew about Booth. My personal feeling is that they really wanted to kill Lincoln. Are they really going to get an alcoholic actor to do it? I mean, surely there's plenty of other people out there that know how to do that better. You know, but I, that's just... You know, I, I don't I don't see it. Um, I think he acted alone. I think Surratt knew what was going on. But I don't think anybody in the Confederate government actually thought he'd get away with it. The point of the alcoholic, <laughs> the actor makes a, I mean, that's, that's a good, good point. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on. I mean, you look at Booth and you go, yeah, that's my guy. That's the guy. Yeah, come on, man. I mean, it's, really? <laughs> you know, jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it, yeah. And it just seems like it sounds like everything just happened to fall into place correctly. And that's not the kind of thing that you can plan for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throughout the movie, there's something about President Lincoln's personality I wanted to ask you about, and he he tells a lot of stories. There's, a, I'll give you an example. There's, a, um, they're in this room where they're talking about the, the bombardment of Fort Fisher in Wilmington, North Carolina is going on. And Lincoln starts telling the story of Ethan Allen and the attack on Fort Ticonderoga in, in 1776. And one of the guys nearby says, oh, no, you're not going to tell another story. Did Lincoln speak, almost speak in parables like that or tell stories a lot like that? According to eyewitnesses, he did all the time. He was a shrewd politician, and he sometimes understood that stories could get his point across better than saying yes or no. The man in question in the cabinet meeting is Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War, who, when Lincoln starts to tell these stories, Stanton's like, oh, God, no, please, not again. <laughs> you can tell he doesn't like it. And yeah, it's like, yeah I, you know what? That's exactly the way Stanton was. Stanton was a very good Secretary of War who often wished that Lincoln would just shut the hell up when it comes to stories. It just, yeah, it just drove him nuts. So I, I, that was, they did their homework on that one because that's beautiful, okay? And if, if you go back and watch that scene, there's a part of the dialogue that a lot of people miss 
where uh, Stanton points to one of the maps on the wall and says, hey, wait a minute, part of this is burned. Have you let the kid in here again to play? And Lincoln's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, that's perfect for Lincoln. OK, so, yeah, Lincoln often did that. There's also the famous uh, scene in the movie where Lincoln tells the Melissa Goings story about the woman uh, he was defending as a lawyer. That actually uh, was a case that he actually litigated. One of my books, I just studied Lincoln as a lawyer. Uh, he actually litigated the Melissa Goings case. That all actually happened. And he did tell that story. So it's not just that he told stories. The people who wrote the script and did the research, they very often found actual stories that he actually said. You know, some, some of them they made up and others, we've got documentation. So that's actually one of the strongest points in the movie. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's great. I, and I love Stanton's reply to it. You just, you just, yeah, it's just, oh, here we go again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He just hides his head and goes, God, please no. <laughs> yeah. Something else I noticed about Lincoln was he seemed to walk around the White House a lot wrapped in a blanket. And I know they don't didn't have, you know, central heat and air like we do now, but it seemed like he was the only one that was constantly in a blanket. So I, I didn't really notice anybody else affected by the cold like that was were they trying to imply like, was he ill or something? Was there something that he was always cold or? That's a really good question. There are eyewitness accounts that indicate that Lincoln didn't sleep well, that he did get up at all hours because of the pressures on him. Uh, I got to admit, right offhand, I don't recall anyone specifically saying he walked around wrapped in a blanket. Um, I know he, he sometimes wrapped himself in a shawl when he went out into uh, cold weather, that kind of thing. I would imagine that that was something that Spielberg or maybe even Daniel Day-Lewis came up with to sort of accent his loneliness and his eccentricity. Uh, that, that's my feeling on that. But it is true that he, he did not sleep well. He looked haggard and haunted. Uh, the famous author of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harry Beecher Stowe, came to visit him during the war. And she said to, to Lincoln, she said, Mr. President, do you have any idea what you're going to do after the war is over? And they, she said Lincoln looked haggard, gave a thin smile and said, I don't think I'll ever see the end of the war. The war is killing me. And every single person that saw Lincoln said, my God, he, he looks awful. His skin is pale, dark sockets around the eyes. If you take a picture of Lincoln in 1861 and 1865, it looks like he aged 30 years um, in only four years. You know, he was one of our younger American presidents at that point. I mean, he was only in his 50s. But he looks like he's in his 70s by the time he comes around. So I, I think that's what they're doing with that. Speaking of Daniel Day-Lewis, how overall, how well do you think he did just capturing the essence of Lincoln? Well, I think I can speak for pretty much everybody who's a Lincoln scholar. I've, I've never seen another reaction to this, but we all just sort of collectively did a wow. I mean, I think he did an incredible job, even down to the details of researching Lincoln's voice. Uh, if you see how Lincoln's been portrayed in previous films, they give him this stentorian James Earl Jones bassoon. Every eyewitness account, of course, we have no recordings of his voice, but every eyewitness account said he had like a tenor voice. Daniel Day-Lewis even did that. The mannerisms fit, even things like his posture fit. Um, I, I, I have a hard time imagining anybody ever even equaling that performance. You know, originally, the man who was supposed to play Lincoln was Liam Neeson. When the movie was first being put together, uh, Spielberg had gotten Liam Neeson to do it. Neeson dropped out because uh, Neeson lost his wife. Uh, his wife died that same year they were going to begin production, and Neeson felt he was too old to play him. I think Neeson would have done a good job, but thank God they got Daniel Day-Lewis, because I, I, I can't imagine anybody doing a better job. Well, speaking of Spielberg, if you were directing this movie, is there anything that you wish they'd included that didn't make it in? I wish they had done something with Frederick Douglass. I really do. As a matter of fact, early drafts of the script, Spielberg had been trying to develop a movie about Lincoln for years. He had a script that was going to be all about nothing but Lincoln's friendship with Frederick Douglass, but he scrapped it because it didn't work dramatically. I wish they would have put Douglass in because uh, Frederick Douglass is such an important figure just in the general move towards the 13th Amendment. Douglas uh, met Lincoln three times during the war. Uh, this is uh, a rare occasion that a black man's allowed into the White House to do anything other than serve drinks. 
There's a famous scene at the um, second inaugural where uh, Lincoln has uh, invited Frederick Douglass to the inaugural ball in the White House and the guards won't let Douglass in because he's a black man. And Douglass finally forces himself in. And then in the front of all of this lily white crowd of the creme de la creme of a southern city like D.C., Lincoln walks across the floor, shakes Douglas's hands and says, Mr. Douglas, I am so glad you're here. Could you tell me what you thought of my speech today? I care about your opinion more than anybody else's. It's a beautiful moment in American history, and I wish they would have found a way to stick that in. Wow. Yeah, I would love to have seen that scene. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about Lincoln. For someone listening to this who wants to learn more about Lincoln, can you recommend one or two of your books to start with and where they can get a copy? I wrote a book on Lincoln and the Constitution. If you're wanting to know about the whole 13th Amendment um, argument, it's a short book. It's a part of a series called the Concise Lincoln Library Series. It's pretty brief, but it's designed for a general audience to understand the constitutional issues. So that's where I I write the most about uh, this particular issue. If you're interested in the whole question of how Lincoln was handling the death of his son and and Mary and all that, uh, my newest book is uh, The the Black Heavens, Abraham Lincoln and Death. And it's all about how Lincoln processed death and dying during the Civil War. So those are two good ones. Great. I'll make sure to add links to those in the show notes for this episode. Oh, thank you. Thanks again so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Dr. Brian Dirk for sharing his expertise about the historical accuracy of 2012's Lincoln with us. If you want to learn even more about the real President Abraham Lincoln, I'd recommend picking up some of Dr. Dirk's great books about Lincoln, like Lincoln and the Constitution and The Black Heavens, Lincoln and Death. You can find links to his books in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Mary Lincoln covered up expenses for White House renovations when she went over budget. Number two, just like we see in the movie, President Lincoln was not sure about the legality of the Emancipation Proclamation. Number three, There was no delegation from the Confederacy trying to negotiate peace like we see in the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Mary Lincoln covered up expenses for White House renovations when she went over budget. That is true. As Dr. Dirk explained, after Mary Lincoln went over budget on renovations, she managed to convince some congressmen and congressmen's aides to cover up the deficit by hiding the money in military appropriations bills. That brings us to number two. Just like we see in the movie, President Lincoln was not sure about the legality of the Emancipation Proclamation. That is also true. We learned from Dr. Dirk that up until the point of the Civil War, no one had ever really tested the boundaries of what war powers meant for a president. They were extremely vague. So it was very possible that when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, that once the war was over, the legality of it would have been called into question. And that was especially a cause for concern for Lincoln because there was a five-judge majority in the U.S. Supreme Court that, as Dr. Dirk put it, were just itching to kill emancipation. That means the lie is number three. There was no delegation from the Confederacy trying to negotiate peace like we see in the movie. As Dr. Dirk explained, there was, in fact, a commission from the Confederacy there with the purpose of negotiating a peace. And similar to what we see in the movie, they did delay the vote on the 13th Amendment due to the rumor of them being in D.C., And although we know that Lincoln denied the commission actually being in D.C., we don't know the specifics of what he said like we see in the movie. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do. And that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that is surprising to people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and effort it takes to create a podcast like this one here, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. 
With that said, today's episode took a total of 32 hours to create and cost $18.98 in out-of-pocket expenses. As I always do, I want to make it clear that that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 32 hours does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also does not include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story podcast website, social media, the, the Based on a True Story email newsletter, and all those other little things that are outside creating a single podcast episode that are still required to make a podcast overall. Similarly, on the expenses side, the $18.98 is just for things that are specifically related to this one episode. It does not include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making a single episode. The, uh, For example, the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the cost of that, the cost of the audio interface that the microphone is plugged into, the computer that is currently recording my voice right now, the software that I'm using to record as well, all the podcast and website hosting costs, and so on and so on. All those things take time to set up and maintain, and they cost money because nothing in this world is free. And that goes beyond things that are associated with this one episode, but they are all things that are required because if I didn't do any of those things, there would not be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free for you to download and listen to, but it's not free on this end to create. And that is why I am so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support this show financially so we can keep it going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll considering help to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to over 60 exclusive episodes on the producer's feed. Over there, we look at how completely fictional movies deal with history and real life to make them seem a little bit more believable. For example, we covered the history in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, Jurassic Park, and the entire Back to the Future franchise, the Mummy franchise, and plenty more. You can find out how to get access to those by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And in the meantime, if you did enjoy today's episode, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.